it got pretty popular uh, when when we were stuck inside doing nothing, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> what were we doing? Who knows? <laughs> Maybe that'll give us a clue, I guess. <laughs> oh, you went there. <laughs> Welcome to episode 64 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. I'm Sherry. And I'm Rory. And welcome back to another episode. And how is everyone doing so far? Have we all adjusted to the time change? <laughs> <laughs> the, the time change isn't quite as new for us as it is for you. <laughs> I know. I just, I, I just have to endure another time change today. And <laughs> yeah, it's awful. I did have a, a big time burnout the other night, though, where I, I got home from work and sat at my computer for a couple hours, and then my brain was just turning to meltdown jelly. So I went to bed for three hours, woke up for two hours, then went back to bed for nine hours. And then I felt great the next day. So maybe that was the lingering after effect of the time change. I haven't had a solid nine hours of sleep in years it's yeah I usually only get like like six (laughs) yeah Yeah. six is my maximum I typically get like five or six yeah yeah Mm -hmm. I'm getting old (laughs) that's what they say they say when you get older you start sleeping less oddly enough really I would have thought you started sleeping more I don't know maybe I'm the old grandpa that wakes up you know before the sun rises and (laughs) All I want to do is sit on my rocking chair and complain about <laughs> the young people. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's like micro naps or stuff that, that the older persons are doing, but uh, average sleep times, I'm pretty sure it's five or six for uh, for the older generation and seven or eight or even eight or nine for the younger generation. Hmm. So yeah, you oldies. <laughs> <laughs> You love that. I'm you too old. look at that look on your face. It's like, that's glee right there. I've never yeah. seen you that happy. Yeah, because you two crossed the old threshold, but I haven't yet. It's delightful. Back in my day, you young people had more respect. <laughs> well, I'm sorry you're still suffering through it, Kenny. I'll survive. I'll survive. So, apart from sleep, what's life like in, in the new city? In, in Eastern Europe, life is fantastic. Uh, there are bakeries everywhere, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to get fat. Because <laughs> I, for example, there's this bakery near me that just focuses on croissants. Oh. And they have like 20 different types of croissants that are all delicious and flaky. <laughs> and now I feel like I'm obligated to try Every single one. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> mm, I remember being, I remember being in Paris and just like eating all of the croissants and probably gained like ten pounds the week I was there. But like, oh, oh yeah, like European croissants, just so good. Mm-hmm. I can feel the butter. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. Oh yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I had a. Uh, a chocolate one, which of course, you know, very standard. You always need to try a chocolate one. And then I also tried a pistachio one, which is very interesting. It tastes mm. very, very nice. So so there are many other types that they offer and I will be sampling every single one. Oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So 
I'll be gaining some weight by the time I get back. <laughs> That's there, okay. Are there any rumblings, though, of, uh, you know, worry about the potential bread shortage coming from all the disruption from Ukraine? You know, I've not heard anything like that or heard people concerned about that. So I don't know. A lot of people are really just worried about local elections and things like that. So mm. um, there's, uh, yeah. There's some uh, candidates that are likely to win that are not very progressive and mm. very pro-Putin. So, oh no, <laughs> people are foreseeing dark times ahead. Oh no, mm. that's too bad. So maybe we're still not in a good timeline yet. <laughs> oh, for sure not. <laughs> I think that's pretty evidenced by what's happening around us. We're not in the good timeline. We got better, but like you know, it's tough to get back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe one day, one day things will get better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyways, you know, one thing that this is, a rough is always better is talking about <laughs> sex. <laughs> <laughs> I was just sitting here thinking, how are you even going to transition to this topic? <laughs> yeah, but anyways, oh, God. you know, uh, I mean, sex is a normal part of life. I think we should be, you know, able to talk about it. And, Absolutely. Uh, but, um, you know, today we're going to talk a little bit about sex and money and the inter- uh, the intersections between sex and money. and But... My first topic that I'm going to talk about is maybe uh, not a not everyone's favorite topic, but for whatever reason, I always find it really interesting. <laughs> I don't I don't know why. Sort of a morbid uh, curiosity, I think. I I think it is a morbid curiosity. So uh, my topic for today is sexually transmitted infections, so STIs. Um, do you, can anyone make a guess of how much? It costs like the lifetime costs to actually treat STIs in the U.S. Like, how much does it cost for single citizen, or are we talking national? Uh, we're talking about the population. Yeah. Whew. Maybe like five billion. I don't know. It's got to be big. There's got. There's a lot of STIs out there. Yeah. And if you think I'm about think- Canada, like where we, you know, fund doctors' visits and things like that, I would say. The price gets higher for the government. I'm thinking big too, but not quite that big. I'm going to shoot at the 800 million range. So the EPA, actually, sorry, the NIH did a study in 2018, and actually they estimated the uh, lifetime cost was actually 15.9 billion. Oh wow. my goodness! Pretty large. Yeah. Pretty large. Huge amount of money spent on uh, <laughs> dealing with STIs. Um, but you know what statistic was actually even more shocking to me? This so th- again, this was done in 2018, and the C- the CDC made an estimate of how many people at any given point in time it has an active STI. Mm. Can you guess? You know how many people? Uh, give me you know whatever a one in one in three. X. Number one in three Ooh, is my estimate. One in three. One in three. Uh, okay, that's, that's okay. quite a bit. I'm gonna say, like one in five. And the award goes to Sherry. Ah, <laughs> it is one in five. Whoa. <laughs> Does that seem high to you guys? It seems very high yeah, to me. It is pretty high. I, no, it doesn't seem too high to me. 
There's so no. many like there's so many different STIs though. They're not all like like doom and gloom and death and whatever. Yeah. Right. So it's like oh you know you just got you know an infection and just need to get it cleared up right. Yeah. Yeah. True. I don't know that that number just seemed really high to me. I just I was really surprised by. It. One in five, like literally, if I'm walking on the street and you count five people, like one of them may have an STI. <laughs> but you're right; it, the, the STI includes, you know, everything, right? I mean, it, it, it definitely includes somewhat benign things like HPV, for example, which you know, it's um, you know, a lot of people may eventually catch H, HPV. Uh, but yeah, the the they did the study tracking STIs, uh, you know, ranging from you know, chlamydia, gonorrhea, all the way to uh, HIV. And they, when they actually broke down the costs, uh, uh, the bulk of it, uh, unfortunately, is associated with just dealing with people with HIV. So about $13.7 billion is all spent on uh, people with HIV. And then $0.8 billion is spent on HPV. So hmm. um, unfortunately, you know, women... Uh, if you exclude HIV, uh, uh, women account for essentially three-fourths of all the costs associated with dealing with uh, STIs. So uh, women definitely are disproportionately uh, impacted uh, by STIs. So, but, you know, fortunately, uh, there is, with uh, HPV, there is now a vaccine. So uh, a lot of young girls are able to take it. And I think in Ontario, I think maybe young boys as well might be able to get it as well. Um, I think so. HPV is now preventable. Uh, We have a vaccine for it. Uh, We know HPV is the leading cause in uh, cancer in women, uh, but in uh, cervix cancer. So uh, it can prevent that. And there was a study done in the UK uh, that was published in The Lancet uh, last year. Basically, they did a population study of monitoring uh, young girls who got the vaccine and they tracked it over time. And the results were actually really fantastic. They were able to actually uh, kind of measure based on the ages of these girls and, you know, when they transitioned into teenagers, they were able to actually reduce uh, kind of the overall cancer risk by over 97%, which is fantastic. So um, I think as more uh, teenagers or uh, young children begin getting vaccinated for HPV, we're just going to continue to see uh, these cancer rates kind of continue to drop. That's fantastic. And that's a, you know, vaccines are relatively cheap versus, you know, having to deal with cancer. So it seems like a pretty good investment to me. Yeah. I believe that men can also get cancer from HPV as well. You can. Um, Yeah. yeah, Because. Penile cancer. (laughs) (laughs) If there's anything that would encourage men to like take the vaccine, like, come on, do you want penile cancer? (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. I ended up getting the vaccine. I was too old at the time. Like they were only giving it at the time. Uh, it was like the first run of it and they were giving it to uh, young girls. And I was, I think I was like 20 or something. I can't even remember, but I decided to pay for it um, and get the vaccine um, because 
my involvement with heterosex was uh, limited, to say the least. Uh, so I was, I was a good candidate to get it, like to get the vaccine. So I decided to get it just to, you know, cover any bases and everything. So because I think it's very important to be vaccinated and, and, and really stop um, the, the potential for cancer, right? So it's a great vaccine. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I also got the vaccine too. And you did? As my, my, yeah, my doctor just recommended, why not? It's just like, okay, maybe it's too late for me, but it's one of those mm-hmm. like, what, what's the reason not? <laughs> it's yeah. just, you know, just in case, right? Like, I, I don't know if I'm that rare percentage that's, you know, going to be impacted by it. So mm-hmm. why not? There's no, there's no side effects or anything like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, from what I'm reading, it does seem exceptionally safe. You know, of course, there's still certain parties who are going to be phobic of vaccines no matter what and, you know, scared away from from the vaccine for HPV, just like they're scared of other vaccines. Yeah. So, yeah, based on the study from The Lancet, I mean, the results are looking really good. So I think uh, this is giving a lot of ammunition for people to continue the HPV program. Uh, around the world so pretty good um but um, would it surprise any of you that uh when it comes to stis uh especially in the u.s that people of color are disproportionately impacted what that's crazy (laughs) Mm, shocking isn't it just absolutely shocking that's wild (laughs) yeah no. So uh, it should not be a surprise. I mean, they are much more impacted, uh, impacted in terms of, number one, having a higher rate <laughs> of uh, infections uh, and also not likely to also seek treatment in time as well. Mm. So, uh, again, the NIH did a study. The, when did they do the study? They completed the study in 2014 and, again, had a broad set of uh demographic in the U.S. And based on the cumulative uh, diagnosis rate, uh, you know, we're we're talking about black people, uh, maybe in the 25, 30% rate in terms of having actually caught an STI. Um, Whereas when you look at uh, the white population, it's less than 10%. So you can see, okay, it's clear the chances of Having an STI is greater in uh, people of color. Uh, so, and they also measured other ethnic groups as well. And again, they are all higher than uh, the, the white population. Um, so definitely kind of sh- uh, shows, okay, race plays a role. Would it also surprise you uh, that income also plays a role here? Oh. Even less well, I think, than... <laughs> I think that's so intertwined as well. Like income and race are intertwined. Like if you think about, you know, uh, how generational wealth hasn't been impacted by things like slavery and, um, you know, uh, you, yeah, you have all these disadvantages um, for these specific races. Uh, so, you know, access to wealth and even sometimes education, especially in the U.S., access to good education um, can really impact your chances of getting an STI. So 100% wealth, I would see 
as impacting. Yeah, the uh, lower income is associated with less access to preventative information mm-hmm. and healthcare, based on uh, the study, and uh, increased use of sex for economic purposes as well. So, and also as a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Again, this was reported from uh, the participants. So, um, yeah, no surprise there. You know. Infections like chlamydia were correlated to poverty as well. So lower incomes uh, was also an indicator for uh, higher risk of STIs. And, you know, the income disparity as well, uh, while it showed up in all races, meaning, for example, in white populations, yes, uh, if you were of lower income and white, you had a higher chance at uh, having an STI. But at the end of the day, I mean, the the differences uh, between white and non-white populations are just so vast. Yeah, there's just a lot of, uh, pretty much the biggest risk is everyone who's just Mm non-white. So it shouldn't be much of a surprise there. It's, um, uh, we're... It's something that the CDC has been really kind of focusing on right now in terms of really trying to increase educational programs and really targeting uh, populations where clearly they don't have access to preventative measures and things like that. Yeah. I The preventative measure that's on the tip of my tongue is, you know, education for and access to, you know, contraceptives like condoms and stuff. You know, your basic layer of protection, is that more lacking in those groups, do you think? Yep. Yep. I, I mean, there's a million reasons, right? So if uh, you were of lower income, you probably work multiple jobs. When do you have time to, you know, uh, go? Uh, when do you have time and when do you have money to actually buy contraception, things like that? So, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's something that, again, I don't think it should be much of a surprise, but uh, at least, you know, we do have empirical data to definitely show there's a disparity here. So with, when it comes to, I, I mentioned, you know, uh, sex as a coping mechanism. What do you think is more, what makes people more happy, hmm. sex or money? Oh, <laughs> Ooh, tough question. Not really. It's sex, 100% sex. No, I don't know. I don't know. I think, no. Well, like it depends on like, is it momentary happiness or is it long-term happiness? Well, don't compare it to like winning the lottery versus one sexual encounter. That's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) Because in a moment, you're probably really happy versus like having money gives you more stability and happiness that way. Okay. Okay. Fair. Yeah. So, I I mean, uh, let's, there there are many ways to maybe interpret uh, happiness and, uh, you know, is it fleeting? Is it, you know, long term? Um, I'll, I'll, just point out there was a study with uh, 16,000 Americans um, by the National Bureau of Economic Research. So they were this purely just economics <laughs> exercise, trying to just survey people uh, um, using economic factors and also trying to equate it to their happiness. Um, but um, I was maybe a little bit surprised, but uh, I mean, they were essentially reporting that Income has no effect because it's really uh, the people that tend to be more happy tend to actually have more sex. So, 
So you, you seem dis, uh, in, you just said income has no effect on happiness. Is that what you just said? Uh, no effect in terms of when you look at the uh, uh, different populations. If you broke up the population in different income levels, really, ultimately, uh, it's the frequency of sex that actually had a positive correlation with happiness. Huh. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. I actually also read a a study briefly about uh, money, sex, and happiness and the the interrelation and correlation between them. Overall, I didn't find the study terribly interesting, but I did pluck out one fun little fact, which is uh, that sex produces the single largest amount of happiness, while commuting to and from work produces the lowest level of psychological well-being. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah. Chosen from a list of 19 possible activities. So what we're saying is you can be poor, but as long as you're getting sex, you're still happy. <laughs> yep. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, in general, right? Or it's, you could it's be one rich of those, like, okay. and not get sex and not happy and rich and get sex and happy. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So this, <laughs> okay. this, I mean, this is a population, I mean, a population survey. So, I mean, yeah, there's going to be outliers on either side, but in general, it's uh, um, the frequency of sex is correlated with happiness. Um, other interesting data that they found as well was uh, homosexuality had no statistical significance on the effect of happiness. So gay people aren't more happier. <laughs> Even Despite though I think title. they probably are. <laughs> Despite being called gay, we are not happier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I exactly. think that's actually a bit of a surprising finding just given the, the potential for a, a negative correlation in that there's so much hate out there that homosexuals have to contend with. I would have thought that would have an impact on happiness and you know, correlate it to sexuality. And the, the other data point that I thought when I read it, I was like, wow, this is speaking to, this is like uh, falling into stereotypes. <laughs> but basically, homosexual males have more partners than heterosexual males. <laughs> oh, really? For lesbians, there are no statistical significance. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> I was like, wow, that's totally stereotypical. <laughs> Anyways, so, yeah, there you go. That's, uh, m- money means nothing, apparently. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to challenge that finding. In fact, I'll, I'll challenge okay. it with an old, dated, and tasteless joke that I'm going to introduce oh, to you I'm now. I'm bracing myself. <laughs> Hold on to everything. Yeah. <laughs> Here it comes. All right, so here's the joke. A man says to a woman, would you sleep with me for one million dollars? Woman says, sure. Man says, how about for ten dollars? Says, what do you think I am? The man says, we've already established what you are. All we're doing is bargaining about price. Uh, Rough, eh? Uh, <laughs> what made you remember this joke? Why, why is this joke happening right now? It actually incited... Uh, the research that I did, because, you know, obviously the punchline indicates that willingness to trade sex for money at any amount is morally contemptible. And, you know, the stinger is against the woman's character. And, of course, I thought it was funny as a middle schooler. Now, I don't really think it's much of a joke at all. And there's middle a lot of... Middle school? This is... <laughs> middle school, yeah. Like, 
I'm thinking like uh, 12, 13 years old, where it was funny. There's a lot of things wrong with it. I'll I'll talk about the things I find wrong with it in a second. But what do you two find wrong? I'm going to blame this on London school. <laughs> uh, I don't. That's not going to actually work. I wasn't in London until post-secondary, oh. so uh, it's small town schooling actually that uh, is to blame for this. But uh, yeah, as I say, what do you guys find problematic about this? Before I get into what I think is bad. Well, you touched on a few of them, right? The uh, insinuation on the female character versus the male character. Yeah, uh, there's so much. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to like quantify how much is wrong with this joke. No, I'm, I'm right there with you, Sherry. Uh, Kenny, what do you think? Maybe I just don't get it. Like, why it's even remotely funny? <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's supposed to be a, a witticism, right? Instead of just coming out and saying to a woman, you're a whore, you're a prostitute. It's a, it's a roundabout way of tricking her into admitting this and then laughing at her, her lack of moral fiber. And Sherry, you hit right on it. You know, If we invert the perspective, then isn't it more pathetic that the man is willing to pay that sum of money for the sex? You know, The fundamental bias against women is that they're supposed to be the gatekeepers compared to the male privilege of being able to pursue sex even at a cost with no question about their character. But it got me thinking about the question, you know, why do people have sex for money? You know, why is sex work a thing? And so that took and me... And it's been classified as the world's oldest profession? It has. Enduring, yes. And yet there are so few protections for sex workers. And it has existed for, we say, thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So the study I looked at was one by... Uh, it's a Canadian study, by the way. Benoit et al. 2017 about would you think about doing sex for money? I almost feel like it might be a French translation there just because it's an odd title. But anyways, they were looking at uh, some agentic or agency level reasons for entry into sex work. So choices and preferences, which you can contrast with what we talk about a lot of the time, which is the structural reasons, you know, childhood disadvantage, a poor education level, as well as abuse and neglect are things that we generally think of as pushing people into sex work. And uh, through the participants in this study, they identified three overlapping structural and agentic reasons for entry into sex work. Critical life events, of course, desire or need for money, also, of course, and one you might not expect, personal appeal of the work. So, a lot of existing research treats entry into sex work, you know, differently from other jobs. Joining the industry is thought to result from factors that are beyond the sex worker's control, like childhood victimization, parental neglect, or isolation from positive social networks. And as I mentioned, socioeconomic factors like poverty and uh, retraction of welfare support, which is especially damaging for single mothers out there. But there is other research that shows entry into sex work isn't always that dissimilar from the rational choice to join any service sector job. Work is precarious and career options can be slim, especially for migrant workers and students. According to Mears and Connell in 2016, women are economically disadvantaged in these commercial sex markets where the gendered wage gap is, or sorry, not disadvantaged, advantaged in commercial sex markets where the gendered wage gap is reversed due to the high value placed on the display of the female body. Also, there is some research about entry into sex work for non-material reasons, including finding meaning in the job and even seeing it as a viable career. What do you two think about that, about the idea of building a career out of sex work? I, 
I mean, I mean, would we not consider people working in like the per- pornography industry? I mean, that's sex work or a form of sex work. Is of course, it not? sex work is a pretty broad term. It can cover pornography workers, exotic dancers, uh, escort services, as well as you know the street level workers. Because I mean, there, there there are reasons why people enter this work, and they weren't coerced into it, and they still want to do it as a career. Um, they, they don't talk about it because obviously there's this uh, taboo about it. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's this it perception. Exists, right? people, yeah. This perception that damaged women and only damaged women are getting into sex work. So, um, you know, like uh, the whole industry and things like that. And I think it is tough on women to make a career out of it if you're just in front of the camera just because after a certain age, women's bodies are not seen as desirable anymore. Um, so I guess that's the only thing I would find, you know, uh, a surprising about your comment about women wanting to make a career out of it, out of it. But thinking about, you know, once, once your body is disposed of in the industry, uh, you can always go, you know, behind the camera and work behind the camera as well. Although positions for women behind the camera and in producing roles are not quite as plentiful, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Excellent points. The study I was reading also drew a, a parallel to paid care workers, including nurses. And it suggested that the desire to help others or contribution can be an important motive for job entry there as well as in sex work. I so I I've listened to a few different podcasts um and I'm trying to remember one of the names of the podcasts uh without stopping my recording here so just hold on a second because um it was a really good one it was about uh the phone sex industry um mm. oh it was called operator um and it was a wondery production um, and it was about phone sex and how how that industry sort of came to fruition and thrived uh, and became so big and and then the downfall of it as as we kind of moved out of the nineties into the two thousands and and it looked at the different ways people were involved with that industry and how um, especially the women who were on the phones with people um would often talk to the men who, and it was almost this therapeutic thing for the men Mm -hmm. who were calling in uh, with maybe these kinks that they felt like they couldn't tell their partners or, um, you know, things like that. And and they actually became these therapists and, and, and really helped the men through their issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was fascinating. It also looked at how the women were uh, really, um, undervalued in that profession the women who were on the phone and it was you know the men at the top who were making the the big bucks right so it it was a very interesting so podcast not, i would highly recommend has, it so nothing has really changed <laughs> there's still <laughs> certain people at the top that are yeah making the money i'm assuming like the studios and things like that which are probably run by males most of them are there are some female-led ones but not quite as much yeah yeah. But for sure, I found it so interesting that it just became this like therapy session for some of these people calling in. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't always men. It was women as well calling in. But yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like on TV that's how it's portrayed. Sometimes I, I'm just remembering a scene from like Arrested Development where they 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 hired a hooker, but all she did was just talk to people, and she was just like doing her nails and just talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in some cases, maybe that is so. As you'd expect, of course, you know, making an income or survival is most important. But uh, there was a surprising number of participants who articulated that desire to help others as like the prime additional motivation. But uh, a lot of people are uncomfortable with this idea of sex work as a choice. Uh, quote the article, the idea that a person might legitimately choose sex work as a viable occupation is, for some, a contradiction in terms. This is because prostitution is typically understood as outside of wage labor, that is, as extreme exploitation or a form of modern slavery. And yeah, pretty well. And um, as a, it's viewed as like the last choice, right? Like right. Someone has. Right. So like no. someone has to be desperate. Uh, all, all options exhausted, kind of idea. And that you know pretty well summed up a lot of academic research up until the nineteen nineties. You know that uh, people would drift into prostitution, as they call it. And uh, it was always focused on the uh, experience of neglected and abused children and teens. But uh, later research has shown, maybe surprisingly, that predisposing factors are a bit less important than we might have expected. And they typically apply more to street-based workers than all of the other sex trade workers that we've been talking about. Indoor sex work reveals that the industry has a much more diverse range of individuals engaging in it. Modern research distinguishes between pathways to street-based survival sex, where many sex workers often arrive as runaways, and pathways to indoor work, where entry is gradual, tentative, and economic motives predominate. But it is less about survival than a desire for financial independence and even upward mobility. Again, and maybe to point out some of the of the perks of indoor sex work or even sex work in general is, uh, you know, comparing street-based and indoor sex workers. Research has shown that street-based workers are more likely to be motivated to engage in sex in order to fund substance use, whereas parlor workers are more likely to be motivated by other economic factors, including the need to pay for living expenses, flexible hours to accommodate childcare, and support dependence as a single parent. That's another pretty important factor, the flexibility that sex work gives you as opposed to, you know, other jobs that have more set schedules. What's your definition of indoor sex work? Is that you're talking about brothels or are you talking about like webcamming or? I'm thinking that it is actual sexual encounters that the article is referencing as opposed to cam work oh. and uh yeah so more more escort service like, i mean your yeah your, your distinction between like inside outside like the outside sounds like it's more on i don't know what the right like unstructured where it's you're finding someone outdoor like basically you're that might actually be an okay way to describe it because a lot of the the indoor settings they almost sound like they have a a management system and like a, a business structure applied to them as opposed to street level workers who are just free agents who maybe have a pimp and that's you know the extent of the of the business okay studies also describe entry into other areas of the sex industry such as porn and exotic dancing 
also supporting the conception of strategic choice, even for the middle classes. Women involved in body display jobs, such as sex work, have a substantial wage advantage and in industry is also attractive to migrant workers and students seeking to improve their education for more stable careers compared to other work options. So yeah, as crazy as it sounds, it does, the article makes it sound as if sex work is preferable to other entry-level jobs like flipping burgers or uh, things like that. Well, you know, if you think about jobs and, and why we get jobs, um, obviously like survival is is the overall goal for for most people getting a job right and so it's about mm-hmm. how you want to um use your body are you going to use your body uh you know at a 10 hour shift on your feet all day kind of thing like there's exploitation in in every industry especially when you think about capitalism um and so you know having a job where you can maybe make your own hours or uh, have that more flexibility is is definitely preferable to being told, here's your shift. You're going to be on your feet for eight to 10 hours and get minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And yeah, and you mentioned that, that flexible hours, depending on our life situation, right? Do you have a kid? Right. That's why they need flexible hours. Yeah. Especially depending on the age of, of their child dependent they may need to really maximize it. And underlying that, of course, is the insufficiency of welfare and unreliability of welfare that drives so many single parents to look for other options. I don't want to overemphasize the material and structural factors because the study did focus a lot on agency, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, They cited in the literature Literature review, Oslin 2014, sex workers connected to services in the USA report that the role of excitement and desire for social mobility factored strongly into their choices. Rosen and Venkatesh argue, in the context of persistent poverty and instability, sex work offers just enough money and flexibility to make a job worthwhile and just enough autonomy and professional satisfaction to make it more attractive than other options and provides a meaningful option quest for a job that provides autonomy and personal fulfillment. Okay. Jumping back to the main study in their three broad overlapping categories. Again, critical life events. That's just going to talk about trauma, driving people into it. Need for money. I think we've covered that. Personal appeal of the work. Uh, so some of the accounts that people give. Participants specifically described the desire to use their skills and strengths, satisfy their curiosities, and increase their confidence and independence, and meet sexual or emotional needs. One participant named Victoria said, The need for money and attraction to sex work merged. I've always been very sexually open. I was like, well, I need money. I don't have a sex life. Why don't I do this? And then I can kind of satisfy both those needs. Another one, Paige, she says that I had another job. I just thought sex work would be interesting to try, and I loved it. I can't believe I just got paid to get laid. (laughs) A third participant named Taryn, she says, uh, in describing upward mobility resulting from an escort job, she described it as a world away from street-based work. There was this other world, you know, a seemingly respectable world that I was now able to see myself in. I just kind of jumped in with both feet, and I didn't look back. So, some Did words. you know that um, any Canadian sex workers 
uh, worldwide income is taxable. Is it? Yes. Yeah, most women who work in sex work do pay taxes. Yeah. So if we think about like qualifying sex work as a job, how do you how do you like define a job? Is it a uh, you know, a place where you go to work and you get money and then you pay taxes with that money. Like, absolutely, we can consider it a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it, even through the courts, any income, whether it's legal or illegally obtained, is taxable. <laughs> if there's one thing the government will always go after, <laughs> it's the tax. <laughs> Worse than criminology, criminality is being a tax cheat. Exactly. It is. I mean, like, <laughs> it's obviously the government will do nothing until they realize you're not paying the ta- your uh, fair share of taxes. And, decri- or, and criminalizing sex work, like if we de- decriminalized it, um, think about all those taxes we could collect, right? Like if we made it more legitimate, made it more welcoming for women to report that mm-hmm. income, like collect those taxes. I don't understand why the government's not for decriminalizing it. Anyway, Just <laughs> I'll let that imag- go for now. <laughs> I'm imagining the emergence of new uh, sex work corporations with their, their phone division. And yeah, maybe opening up to, to unionization. Absolutely. That would so help. I'm just help. trying to picture what the T4 form looks like now. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> I know. But, you know, some of that's just our, our biases that we need to get over if, uh, if we're, you know, legitimizing this profession. Uh, one more interesting little tidbit from this uh, article I wanted to touch on. 9% of participants mentioned viewing sex work as a way to explore and express their sexuality and gender identity. As Blair, who describes himself as an extremely sexy and attractive man who dresses up like a woman, he explained, I was having lots of sex with people and doing online dating and stuff, swinging and stuff, and I just committed to actually becoming a crossdresser, which means you're shaving your body, you put a lot of work into becoming feminine, and I enjoyed it. And then I realized I might be able to make money doing this. So there you go, a, a creative sexual outlet for certain people it's not all doom and gloom and and personal trauma it's all about the money (laughs) (laughs) not all about the money it's got some personal satisfaction in there like all jobs do that's true satisfaction ever ever since i was a kid everyone kept telling me you know you should do a job that you love (laughs) there you go (laughs) yeah i don't know i i don't personally think that i'm brave enough to to go down that particular avenue but i also don't think it's right to begrudge or morally condemn anyone who is and wants to explore that option i just don't think i'm going to be able to make that much money (laughs) (laughs) might be a short client list you're thinking (laughs) i think i could hit a niche because i'm pregnant right now i was talking to my wife about this earlier today (laughs) i I think that i could hit a niche But it's only about like six more months. <laughs> or maybe I could hit the niche of like breastfeeding after that. I don't know. I think I think I should get into it. I just don't think I'm pretty enough. And that's what would keep me from it, I oh, think. Hush. <laughs> also, future I feel like prospects I'm not pretty enough as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kenny, we, we feel like we're not pretty enough. And I think that's wrong. <laughs> I wonder, though, I wonder if pregnant workers get paid a premium because it's not like you can always be pregnant. Mm-hmm. It's it's a limited time deal. It's got to be, you know, rare commodity kind of. Yeah. 
You know what I also maybe am also secretly afraid? I don't want to know what's I'm, what I'm actually worth. Because if the number is low, it's going to demoralize me. Yeah, Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) And there there is a lot of work that goes into sex work. And I think that's something that I think people underestimate. Because you have to promote yourself and you have to... Um, actively, you know, get clients and and things like that and whatever you're doing. So I think there's a lot of work that goes into it as well. All right. So you went through our sort of basics of sex work. And I started thinking about sex work. And um, one thing that I came, I kept coming back to is like, we all just, and are still going through, went through and are still going through a pandemic. And how has that really impacted the sex work industry? Because it's such an in-person, well, it's often an in-person industry. There is online content Mm -hmm. as well. But, uh, you know, thinking back to, what is it? We're we're at the two-year mark. We we hit the two-year mark, didn't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So two years ago, uh, everything shut down. Every workplace shut down right? So there was, and you had to legally, you had to stay in your house, uh, Mm -hmm. except to go out and get groceries, right? So thinking about the people who did sex work and, um, you know, they essentially lost their jobs too. Mm -hmm. Um, And so due to the pandemic, there's this decrease in demand for services. Um, There's no salary or benefits. Um, There's really no safety net for these people. Uh, And so, you know, due to Canada's laws around sex work, a lot of sex workers felt, you know, too afraid to apply for the CERB, the CERB. And a lot of them didn't qualify because they weren't let go by their jobs, right? It was mm-hmm. just the the mere fact of the pandemic. So they can't prove that they were let go from their job um, because their job just sort of became almost irrelevant all of a sudden. Yeah, um, I'm actually... Um just to interject for a second, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I was picturing exotic dancers who, of course, lost their jobs because nobody's allowed to to visit those establishments. Um, I was just wondering what kind of uh, employment they have. Like, are they contracted workers? Like, can't be hourly rate workers, are they? I I honestly don't know, though. Uh, exotic dancers? Yeah. They would have been able to apply for the CERB because they would have had to be let go by their employer, which would have been the strip club, right? Um, mm-hmm. So they, I don't really know how they're paid, if it's hourly or what it is, it's, because they probably work a lot for tips and um, right. lap dances and things like that, right? So yeah. yeah, it could be like a serving wage where Maybe. you're augmented by tips. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah. it's a curiosity, but you know, as you say, moral of the story is they would have been the ones who were able to apply for CERB, so so that's mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, because I thought about that as well. I remember driving um, around London and when the pandemic was at its peak, and sort of thinking about all of these different workplaces that had to shut down, and and then driving past somewhere like the strip club and wondering, you know, are they ever even going to open up? What's going to happen to strip clubs once we open up? Um, are a lot of them going to um, find themselves out of business because, you know, they could never really reopen the way that they 
were intended to open, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the kind of contact that you have would have in that kind of establishment, it's got to be one of the last places that's going to get a, you know, the go-ahead to reopen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just by the sheer nature of the business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't really know what they did during the pandemic. I don't frequent strip clubs that way. Um, so I'm not sure what they did exactly. Um, I think they survived though. I think we still have, you know, a good number of strip clubs in London. Yeah. But I, I think also uh, because of the pandemic, there was a kind of explosion in uh, like sites like OnlyFans where people right. uh, are paying subscriptions to yes, yes. gain either you know, content or even interactions with sex workers, uh, interactions online. So, um, so yes. I mean, there, there are people, I mean, the, the top 1% of like, I think OnlyFans creators are making millions mm-hmm. of dollars. So they are never returning back to, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a normal work, work environment. Mm-hmm. And and that's where I'm that's where I'm going with this for sure. Um, so before we get there, though, um, we should establish a few different things. Um, so uh, something that uh, goes along with sex work is sort of how we make laws around sex work. And so in Canada, uh, only some portions of sex work are criminalized. Um, so. It's illegal for companies to advertise sex work, and it's illegal for people to pay for sex work. Um, So we tried to, the conservative government brought this in, they tried to help sex workers uh, (laughs) in quotations there um, by making it so that it's not illegal for the woman to offer or to give, you know, sexual acts However, it is illegal for the person to pay for them um, and for companies to advertise. Um, But individuals can advertise um, their own and promote their own um, sex work, I guess. Uh, But you can't do it through a company. Um, Yeah, so so that's kind of what's criminalized in Canada. But a um, a lot of our work is impacted by the U.S. and the U.S. has a lot more stringent laws. Uh, So in the U.S., even advertising sex work at all is illegal. Um, So it made it really difficult for a lot of online promoters, even in Canada, um, you know, to promote their uh, explicit content um, and to, to advertise their business in places where they have a following or a clientele. Um, so places like social media, uh, so Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And also there were a lot of websites that got impacted. So if you remember Craigslist, uh, took down their personals, uh, page because of that law. Um, so a lot of, you know, a lot of sex workers that were in Canada that were using Craigslist suddenly found that they could no longer use that website because of this U S law that was put Mm -hmm. into place. Yeah. Um, And so these laws are really important to look at. And it's important to know, you know, um, with the pandemic hitting uh, the and and this was something we kind of touched on. But the most at risk um, in this community are, you know, queer, trans, black, indigenous 
communities of color, migrant workers, uh, and those with illnesses and disabilities. So, um, you know, those, you know, sex work is, is often an overlooked population and, and those are really, uh, vulnerable populations. And, and so it's important that we find ways to support them and not overlook them, especially Mm -hmm. when a pandemic comes. Right. And so, like you mentioned, Kenny, uh, during the pandemic, a lot of sex workers, um, including exotic dancers and and people of that nature, actually turned to the OnlyFans website. Um, and so in that, I have some data from the first year of OnlyFans. I think it came from 2020. Um, it saw a 75% um, month-on-month increase in signups uh, in March, since March and April. So throughout that year, since the March and April, when pandemic really hit, uh, it saw a 75% increase and there was an average of 200,000 users signing up every day. So it got pretty popular, uh, when, when we were stuck inside doing nothing, I suppose, (laughs) (laughs) what were we doing? Who knows? (laughs) Maybe that'll give us a clue, I guess. (laughs) Oh, you went there. <laughs> well, like <laughs> I think about all the babies that were born over the over the course of the pandemic, and a lot of there was that. I think they called them. Oh, what did they call them? The what generation were they? The Corona. Uh, oh, there was a funny name. Um, <laughs> okay, I was thinking, is it Generation C? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I can't remember. If I remember, I'll let you know at some point. But, Call them um, lockdown babies for now. Yeah. <laughs> there were a lot of lockdown babies, for sure. <laughs> and and I think that could be mirrored in the in the sex work industry online as we got stuck inside with nothing else to do. Those of us who maybe weren't working or, um, I don't know, maybe even working individuals. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so the user numbers grew from 20 million before the pandemic to more than 120 million over 12 months of time. So uh, this is uh, like um, adult entertainers who are uh, the users in this situation where they, um, you know, they're having their customers sign up during lockdowns because they can't you know, have access to them, right, in person. Uh, and so they're able to share their X-rated content. And there were a lot of creators who maybe weren't involved in sex work before uh, that ended up joining the platform because they lost their jobs. So uh, I did listen to a podcast um, called How Come, and come is spelt in the sexually explicit way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I won't spell it out because I don't want us to get an explicit rating. Um, but like, I guess they have had issues with their their podcast being named as such, and uh, have gotten um, bans and things in place because of that, which I think is sad. Uh, but anyway, uh, it looked at it actually interviewed a few comedians, and it interviews a lot of comedians, I think, within this uh, podcast. But they had one episode where they interviewed com- comedians who. Um, who started OnlyFans pages. So they would uh like they would post their content and stuff on Instagram and privately people would ask them for nudes or certain things and they would like for money and uh so they would sort of do that on the side um 
through Instagram, but then people didn't really know that they offered this service uh, until they joined OnlyFans. Uh, so I found that interesting. So there were creators, maybe comedians, you know, they wouldn't have work for a long time during the pandemic because uh, we saw theaters closing and um, and that sort of thing, who, who were able to, you know, start an OnlyFans page. Um, OnlyFans, um, some interesting facts about OnlyFans, uh, they ask for 20% of the content creator's earnings. So they take 20% of what that creator earns. Um, and so uh, the company's pre-tax profits, I think this is again another 2020 stat, uh, hit 74 million, according to the Financial Times. Yeah. So quite a bit amount of money if you think they're taking 20% of people's earnings. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. But that that's 70 million or what that's you, you're saying that's the profit. So there's that means the revenue is actually yeah. much higher. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yes. Um and and there are are other platforms. Like it's interesting to think about um all of these platforms that uh were, you know, kind of built off the backs of sex workers who allowed sex workers to um you know, be a part of their platform and and promote their their sexually explicit content. Um, Patreon was one of those. It took ten percent. Um, Patreon, I'll get to this, but Patreon no longer allows sex sexually explicit content. Um, but uh, yeah, so because like, I was totally thinking Patreon has all my favorite science, you know, <laughs> YouTubers. I was like, I can't picture that site <laughs> doing anything like that. Well, they built their company off the backs of, and a lot of these companies build their, their companies off the backs of the financial success of sex workers and are able, some of them, some of them, not all of them, are able to transition into maybe a bit more of a um, less explicit content base. I suppose because Patreon is a website for a lot of podcasts uh, to sort of get money from their subscribers. Um, so like we yeah. post to uh, Apple Podcasts or, or Spotify or whatever, but we don't get any money from that. So the way that you would get money from that is if you had a Patreon account, essentially, for your fans. Um, yeah. Anyway, so back to OnlyFans. Um, and I'll kind of talk about a few different platforms, but OnlyFans really revolutionized sex work. Um, so places like Pornhub um, or other forms of sex work, there was um, this issue where Pornhub would kind of own the content that you created, mm-hmm. or if you, uh, you know, you were paid on set for creating porn, you get paid for that one sort of scene that you're in, but you don't get paid after that. Like you don't get royalties or or anything like that when it's posted because the video is definitely going to receive plenty of hits after the initial posting right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so OnlyFans is this sort of um subscription-based platform where you can subscribe monthly and then get tips and um you can um also provide extra content on top of that if you you know made some custom content for somebody or whatever um so it allowed these content creators to own their content. So they get to own it. They get to choose what they want to do, which, you know, if you're in a um, 
in an escort situation, you're sometimes in a position where you don't really get to choose what you would like to participate in. It, it becomes difficult if you are maybe threatened or, uh, you know, in a um, scary situation like that, right? Um, and they can also block users who they think are abusive. So if you are a content creator and you have somebody who is messaging you and you feel like they are uh, stepping over a line, you can just block them. Um, so it really gives content creators uh, the power to control their content a lot, um, a lot more effectively. Um, so you're creating your parameters, you're creating your price, you're deciding how much per month your subscribers are going to pay and how much for what services and things like that. So it's really, it really revolutionized how people are um, in the sex work are sort of giving out their services. So, uh, you know, a lot of these content creators have been able to monetize their social media followings. So they have followings on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and, you know, when you are on Instagram and Twitter, you really rely on brand deals, right? Um, so a lot of people have deals with brands where they post, you know, I don't know, a post where they they have that brand and they're talking about it or something like that. But with brand deals, um, it may take like 30 days to get your payment for that. Whereas with OnlyFans, um, the creators are able to get payments every week and you can actually financially a plan around this kind of mm -hmm. work because you can see how many subscribers you have. Um, so you know how much money is going to come in every, every week. Um, and so it gives a bit of financial stability as well. So I found this whole website so fascinating. Um, I just went down this rabbit hole and it was so fantastic. <laughs> it, <laughs> um, and did you think in the back of your mind, you're like, I'm in the wrong career. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> All the people are making so much money. <laughs> right? And they I get know, to I like, a... create what they want. They're just like, it just sounded so amazing. It does. It does sound wonderful, but I had it's a thought. It's the entrepreneurial, you know, spirit. You know, you're mm -hmm. making your own business. You're just raking in the money. <laughs> like, we're not over-focusing on, you know, the most successful content creators, are we? Because you mentioned there was like hundreds of thousands of new signups. Well, yeah. my, my mind went to how do you distinguish yourself among that many different people? How do you build a know a significant following to have that kind of reliable income that you're talking about it can be difficult and you know what it that's when it it's like you talk about a full-time job and listening to this podcast how come they talked about um you know having to actually you have to post content frequently so it's these people who are posting content every day um mm -hmm. and who are using their social media to kind of bolster their um, earnings on OnlyFans web pages, and you have to. It's constantly like so much, you know, effort that you're putting in. Mm -hmm. um, so it is a lot of it is a lot of work. So you have to either make it this full time career choice, um, or be content with maybe getting you know a thousand extra dollars a month or something like that. Like it's there's definitely a lot of work that goes into it. Um, and it is made tougher, like I said earlier about these laws that have come in where, um, in the U S you can't, um, you can't advertise your, uh, sex work. And so these people who are on OnlyFans, they, they 
struggle with being able to tell people that they're on OnlyFans and promote their OnlyFans through their social media, which would bring their income to the OnlyFans website. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so there, while it, yeah, so while it is this sort of utopia almost, (laughs) we'll get into how it's not a utopia, (laughs) but as this kind of utopia of content creators being able to be creative um, and provide sex work in, on their own terms, um, Mm -hmm. there are some downsides, obviously. Uh, So one of those downsides was, you know, it's a lot of work and um, you have to really focus on being almost like an influencer and that is Mm -hmm. it's tough it's tough to get people to follow you and have enough fans and things like that um but there are there are downsides that sort of bleed into sex work in general um so there are uh there was a lot of stories that I read about um people who you know risked losing their job or did lose their job uh because an employer found out about their sex work um you know, you could lose a custody battle in court mm-hmm. uh, if you go to court and and that is your income. That is cause, because we have all these taboos around sex work and, and sex workers. Um, there's a lot of banks as well and companies who single out sex work uh, and sex workers by forcing them to pay higher fees and interest rates uh, because they consider them high risk uh, because it's maybe not a stable income. There are platforms like PayPal and Venmo, Venmo who continually ban sex workers off their platform and there's you know little to no recourse um, against these platforms. So it is, you know, it is one of those jobs that is um, you know, comes with a lot of stigma and a lot of ta- like taboo with it. Um, but you know, there's only one organization that doesn't have much stigma. It's the tax man. <laughs> they still want the money. <laughs> they still want the money. <laughs> no yes. virtue signaling from the tax man. He's going to come no matter what. <laughs> Just yes. give me the money. <laughs> and, and he's not going to protect sex workers either. Um, because the mm. criminalization of sex workers only hurts sex workers. And if you think about like the reasons why they are criminalizing sex work is, you know, usually they cite things like um, human trafficking, um, when really all, all it's doing is helping to, you know, hurt the people who are genuinely trying to engage in sex work as a career option. Um, and, and doesn't even accomplish what they set out to do of, you know, helping to stop sex trafficking. Like they're not helping anything. So uh, what is the point of these laws? So, you know, it's, it's a tough position to be in. There's a lot of this stigma of sex work. Um, and of course I wanted to, to sort of get into the banking aspect of it. Cause there was something that happened not recent. Well, I guess. Yeah, I guess recent, we could say. It happened last year um, to do with OnlyFans and banking issues. Um, So online sex workers often have to uh, contend against banks and government laws. Um, And so, like I said, all these websites that built their platform off of sexual worker content earn their fortunes from it. 
and then pull that content from its platform, you know, without any notice. Um, and so there was a couple examples of this that did did this. So Tumblr is one of those examples, if you remember. Um, Tumblr is a platform where people post pictures and things. Um, and they did this in 2018. It banned all nudity on its site. So even cartoon or artistic nudity, so like paintings and stuff that would be considered classical paintings, but had nudity in them. Um, and, and they did this because of, uh, they, they said it was issues with maintaining their presence on Apple's iOS um, app store. Uh, so they, they felt like they wouldn't be able to maintain their presence on there. Apple was going to take them off potentially. Um, and so they had to transition away from uh, nude content. And so after their transition, Tumblr saw this huge decline in online traffic uh, down to 319 million visitors monthly when they originally had 642. So they lost like half their base mm. um, before the ban. They had so much more. Um, and then Tumblr was purchased by WordPress for 3 million, uh, like tiny amount when you think about how much they were worth when they had nudity, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can really see where the where the added value is coming from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, Patreon, like I said, also started out allowing, and this was in their terms of service, in their guidelines, they um, allowed nudity and sexual expression in their terms and service. But then uh, they did enact a similar policy citing pressure from payment processors. So hmm. this is when we get into credit cards and banking, um, banking information. But I think the most interesting is the OnlyFans one. Um, so last year, the website attempted to ban sexually explicit content. Uh, so 2021, uh, because MasterCard changed its terms of service and would no longer allow its customers to purchase sexually explicit, explicit content. So very really? interesting. I thought that I thought that was fascinating. And I remember when this happened, but it didn't really affect me that much. I'm not on OnlyFans. I don't really I didn't at the time know too what, much about you, it. I mean what what's what do you think the rationale is? Because I feel like I mean people use have used credit cards to buy whatever. I don't know. Pornography, things like that for ages, right? So, I can Yeah, no, I, I have a MasterCard. Yeah. I was. I do too. Now I want to cancel. <laughs> well, no, I was just thinking. I've I have yet to try to register for OnlyFans, but now that I know I can't, it it kind of feels like a problem to me. Well, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> I know. I kind of want to register OnlyFans I want to support these content creators and these sex workers that are doing like what they want, want and what they love. Right? Like, it's so cool. But no, I'm not going to. <laughs> wasn't an overshare, Kenny. It's just, haven't you ever, like, you, you wouldn't have even thought of something, but then when you find out you're not allowed to do it, it's like, I don't want to do you it. Want to, you're like, how dare you say I can't? <laughs> you sound like my students. Like, that that was literally something they That's said this last logic. week. That's a student logic? Mm-hmm. I told them not to sniff the chili powder, and they did it anyways, and they cited because I told them not to. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> I'm imagining they got a just reward for sniffing the chili powder. Uh, 
yeah. <laughs> Just reminded me of what I heard this week. And I was like, what are you talking about? You don't... <laughs> anyway. So, let's talk about MasterCard. Uh, and, and we'll get to the um, sort of conclusion of this whole debacle. Um, so, they developed this policy. Um, so, it's for adult content websites using their credit card uh, or payment options. And it imposed requirements like uh, pre-approval of all content before publication, uh, forbidding certain search terms, and keeping records of age and identity, ver identity verification for all performers. Um, so the stated intent of the policy is to prevent child sexual abuse material and other non-consensual content. But in practice, these requirements are really difficult, uh, if not impossible, to comply with because... Mm. Um, you have companies like OnlyFans uh, who have 1 million content creators posting at least once daily. Um, so under MasterCard's policy, OnlyFans would have to review each video before it's published to determine whether or not it complies, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's almost impossible to review that many videos. And then if you rely on AI detection, there's often errors with this. Um, yeah. Even if you think about Facebook, how they try and, and enact this um, policy to to prevent videos like that from coming out. Like we've we've seen in the past all of these uh, controversies where um, live Facebook live videos come out uh, where someone is doing something extremely illegal and, uh, you know, it doesn't even get shut down for a certain, like a long period of time until enough people have reported it and things like that. So mm -hmm. it's just impossible, impossible to comply with these rules. And so that's why OnlyFans decided to take away their sexually explicit content. Um, however, that's, that was sort of the base of their, their whole platform. Right. Um, <clears throat> and so these rules that, that, um, companies like MasterCard create uh, actually destabilize the websites that sex workers use to conduct business. Um, so, you know, these sex workers have finally created uh, this kind of niche in the world of internet where they can create what they want and it's a positive space for them. And then these banks come along and say, oh, nope, no, you can't. And, and, and what their policy is doing doesn't even, doesn't even help uh, you know, stop sex trafficking and, and, uh, you know, exploitation of children. It just stops, you know, legitimate sex work. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and on the podcast I was listening, the How Come podcast, somebody mentioned like, you know, we know that, um, there are so many car accidents all the time, but in order to stop car accidents, we don't say there will be no more cars on the road. Right. We implement things like seatbelts and um, airbags and I don't know, rear view backup cameras and things yeah, like new that. New traffic so that lights, new stop signs. Yes, absolutely. So it makes it safer. Right. But we don't look at, you know, sex work this way where we want to see about making it safer without actually taking away from the people who are doing it legitimately because there is just so much stigma around people who legitimately engage in sex work. Mm -hmm. 
And it really only applies to a small fraction of content. There is a lot of legitimate consensual content out there. Um, and so for OnlyFans, it really only applied to maybe a small fraction of content. Yeah, so this was this was uh, MasterCard. Uh, I just wanted to read something that the ACLU sort of has on their website about sex work and the laws around sex work. So they said, laws that criminalize sex work make sex workers more vulnerable to abuse by clients, law enforcement, and others who target and harass sex workers or those perceived as sex workers, such as many trans women of color. Mm-hmm. Abusers know that sex workers often will not report out of fears of arrest. Similarly, not allowing sex workers full access to web platforms and financial services makes it harder for sex workers to survive. So sex work during the pandemic transitioned online. It became a safer way to have sex work, right? It was illegal to leave your house um, during the pandemic, uh, the beginning of the pandemic. You also take a risk of encountering uh, somebody face to face, really close up. Uh, you know, sex is such an intimate thing that you are more exposed to COVID. Um, so being online has really helped to uh, give a safe place for sex workers, and it is sad that they continually have to fight against, uh, you know, these changes in policy with both online platforms and the banks behind them. Um, however, there is a good ending to this story. We do have a positive outcome, uh, because, um, OnlyFans, uh, the website, uh, encountered so much public backlash against, uh, content creators and, or from its content, content creators and from its users, it had so much backlash that, uh, from this decision that it ended up reversing, um, its policy and saying it had agreed to terms with MasterCard. <laughs> so who knows what those terms are, but they somehow found a way to make this happen. Whereas they weren't maybe willing to discuss with MasterCard before, or, you know, maybe MasterCard realized how much money they were losing out of this policy or whatever happened. <laughs> they, they somehow so came to there terms. there was a good outcome from the pandemic. <laughs> There was, <laughs> but it kind of, it kind of makes you, it's a feel good ending because it kind of makes you think like we do have a say in certain things in life. And so if, if a company is doing something that is bad, we can really speak out and we do have power, um, you know, in mass numbers, right? So mm-hmm. um, an impact was made. Uh, so only fans are still creating content. It's a win. Yes. It's a win. It's a win. And I feel really empowered by like learning all of this about OnlyFans. Like I felt really, it was an amazing, I just got so fascinated and went down this rabbit hole. And, and I feel like it's, oh, it just makes me feel so empowered to think, you know, women are taking back their lives. Like you said, it was uh, the oldest profession, Right. And, and that is so true. And and, you know, thinking back to uh, throughout history, it's how women actually acquired enough wealth to own land and actually were able to have the vote before many other women because they were landowners. Um, 
and and so it's allowed women to be empowered. And I, you know, I, the the podcast I was listening to made this point about how women in power uh, are very threatening to the, uh, you know, white cis male in power. Uh, and, and so that's why these, these laws and things are enacted because, you know, they're threatening to the, the system that has been created to disenfranchise women. And I love it. I just love seeing women succeed in doing what they want to do and feeling empowered. I just Absolutely. Love it. Small victory for the content creators. <laughs> yeah. I'll give it a shout out to the male sex workers. I know we focus a lot yeah, on women, sorry. but you know, yes. They're also on OnlyFans. <laughs> yes. Sorry. I think I think a lot about the women uh, sex workers because yeah. they are, you know, so so hurt by a lot of this. They are. It's it's a female dominated uh, employment, <laughs> and uh, but there are males who participate frequently, like definitely, in in sex work as well, and they are also stigmatized and. Um, and that sort of thing. Not quite as. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it hurts both genders um, for sure. Mm-hmm. But it's nice to see them succeed. And yes. Positive and... note. Let us just hang on to yeah. this positive note <laughs> so that we don't end on a sour one. It just fills me with so much happiness. <laughs> so we wish them great success in the future and keep on doing what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Do what makes and you give happy. give money to the creators, maybe? I'm sure many people are contributing. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm sure they have if, no if, issues if, there. Based, based, based on the financials from OnlyFans, I'm pretty sure many people are contributing. So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for listening to our episode. And I guess I'll talk to you guys later. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you guys later. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Last week we talked about um, the Sunshine Protection Act. I want you to look at the logo I came up with. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, I love it. The sun is holding guns. That's amazing. He's dual wielding. That's beautiful. I like, I love it. I pictured an AK-47 originally, but the two guns are just as good. Yeah, so that, that little image is going to be hidden in the uh, podcast. <laughs> a little Easter egg there. So, a little Easter egg will be hidden in that podcast. So if, Wonderful. If you're listening to this and you <laughs> happen to hit that section, you'll see the image. <laughs>